Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum, and in this episode, we're going to talk DEI in the workplace. My guest this time is Joe Gerstant, a keynote speaker, author, and consultant on a mission to bring more clarity and new practices to DEI efforts in all sorts of organizations. He has worked with Fortune 100 corporations, uh, small nonprofits, and lots in between. Joe speaks at numerous conferences and summits and blogs at, at his website, um, and he'll tell you more about that later, I'm sure. Uh, he brings unique perspectives and trademark energy to keynote at conferences nationwide and facility training workshops for corporate and professional groups. He's also a contributor at the Workforce Diversity Network Expert Forum, and his insights are being published in lots of cool places, including Diversity Executive, HR Executive, and lots more. Joe, you absolute celebrity, sir. Welcome to the show today. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to join you for this conversation. So um, I'm starting with a challenge. Please introduce yourself beyond my wee introduction there in 30 seconds or less. Well, you, you gave me a fantastic introduction. I don't know that I, I can top that. Uh, uh, but my name is Joe Gerstan. I do diversity and inclusion work. And I've been doing that work as an external consultant for about 14 years now. And before that, I did it uh, internally. Uh, altogether, I've been doing diversity inclusion work for uh, close to 20 years in one form or another. And um, I think it's a pretty exciting time uh, to be a part of this work. Uh, there's a pretty big influx of energy and resources and attention and uh, excited to chat about it a little bit with you today, Bill. There certainly is, Joe, and that's going to be a big focus of what we do talk about today. What an exciting time to do what you do. Um, and, and you have an interesting career background, of course. So you served in the Marine Corps for four years, and you spent about six years working in management and business development for, for tech and communication companies. How, how did that experience shape your ideas around DEI? You know, the, the, the time that I spent in sales and sales management, I don't know that... Um, that that was a period of time that was impactful relative to DNI. The time that I spent in the Marine Corps for sure was. Um, that's probably where I learned some of my first diversity lessons, although I don't know how conscious I was of it at the time. But I grew up in a very rural, very homogenous part of the world. And so the Marine Corps was kind of my first exposure to much in the way of diversity. But the real impact came after I left uh, the sales and sales management roles and went to work uh, for a nonprofit organization because uh, that put me uh, around people who are different than I was, uh, having different experiences than I was. That was really kind of a life changing experience and probably the biggest turning point uh, that, that pushed me in the direction of the work uh, that I do now when I went to work in the, in the nonprofit world. Looking for better tools to boost performance, engagement and well-being? With the rise in remote and hybrid workforces, you probably want better control, and IntelliHR customers have found a better way. IntelliHR's award-winning people management platform helps you to enable performance, automate your tedious HR admin, and access real-time HR analytics at the click of a button, all in the one place. Learn more at IntelliHR.com. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, now then, I want to get into definitions with you. Uh, we're going to get into some semantics, listeners. I know you like a little bit of semantics. Um, Joe, you use the word inclusion in a couple of different ways. Okay, you, you talk about the the active process to include, and and you talk about the uh, the experiential 
outcome uh, to be included. Can you maybe explain the difference between the two and why it matters? Yeah, I, I do think it matters. And, and I do care about semantics. I think one of the things that makes this work and these conversations maybe a little bit more difficult and a little bit less meaningful than it should be is because I think there's almost never a common language. Uh, inclusion is a good example. Inclusion is an incredibly popular word today. Um, it is probably one of the most popular words relative to the workplace. It's not at all difficult to find leaders or organizations who will tell you that they're inclusive. What remains difficult to find are leaders and organizations who can tell you what that means in simple language. Um, as popular as it is, inclusion remains a vague, abstract idea inside most organizations. And so I think having a common language, having clear, concise definitions, I think it's one of the most important kind of foundational aspects of this work. If, if you can't tell me what diversity means to you or inclusion or equity, then I don't know how you pick your metrics and your strategies and your tactics. I think, I think you're just doing what everyone else is doing. And I, and I think that's what a lot of organizations are doing. So I do spend a lot of time thinking and talking about language and trying to be precise uh, in how we use these words. As you mentioned, I do use the word inclusion in a couple of different ways. I use it to talk about the active process of change. So those are the things that we do as individuals and groups to create a more inclusive work experience for others. And then I use it to talk about the experiential outcome the sense or the experience of being fully included. What does that, in your organization, what does it look like and sound like and feel like and smell like to be fully included? And until you have some language around both of those things, again, I think it's hard to identify the right strategies and tactics and the right metrics. If you define, uh, if you put some language together around what it means to be included in your organization, then you can take that definition and you can go to your employees and say, does this match your experience? And all of a sudden you've got a very robust metric. There's, I hear this idea from a lot of folks that, you know, this work is too intangible and other than demographics, it's hard to measure stuff. Well, some of it is intangible, but, but if you, if you put a, a common understanding together of what it means to be included in your organization, you can ask people if that matches their experience and their answers become very valuable feedback for you. Where, where does, where are we uh, meeting this and where are we falling short and what does that look like that that helps you figure out where some of your opportunities for improvement are and i'm not suggesting that people need to use these words the way that i use them um, when we're talking about things like inclusion and equity and belonging they're big complex topics they can mean different things to different people the, the point i think is that for your organization it's critically important for you to have a common language to for everyone to know that when we say diversity in this building when we say inclusion in this building, this is exactly and specifically what we mean. Um, I think that's important to make sure that you're, as I said, picking the right approaches. But I also think the reality is, is that there are some people that when they hear those words, diversity, inclusion, equity, what they think you're talking about is quotas or sensitivity or an HR initiative or a political agenda or political correctness, or we're going to get rid of all the white men. Now, none of those things are remotely true, but because some pundit or podcaster somewhere has told people that's what this work is about, that's what they're thinking. That's what's top of mind for them when they hear these words. One of the ways in which you address that and, and, and remove that is you make sure that you've got clear and concise definitions in your organization. Oh, those podcasters, they've got a lot to answer for, haven't they? Hey? Oh, jeez. Yeah, you, you just can't trust these podcasters. Oh, my goodness. Um, hey, I've got a lovely quote from you 
Um, I, I, I just thought it, I thought it was fantastic. I'm like, I need to find a way to get this into uh, one of my questions for you. It's it's from a post on Sherm uh, relating to a presentation I think you did with them a while back, and and the quote is, "And we sprinkle on a bit of design thinking as a way of redesigning specific aspects of the work experience." Um, so. We've actually we've published a fair few shows now, I guess, uh, on the HR Chat Pod uh, around design thinking. Um, in, in your opinion, how can design thinking help with DEI efforts? Yeah, I think if I think there's a pretty big opportunity there. I think if we want to more consistently provide people with an inclusive employee experience and inclusive work experience, there's once we have some clarity on what that means for our organization, there's some opportunity to redesign things, to redesign how we have meetings with inclusion in mind, to redesign how we make decisions, to redesign how the day begins, to redesign how the day ends. I think I think there's important touch points and there's aspects of the work experience that are fairly ubiquitous that we, we, can, we can focus on those specific things and redesign them with inclusion in mind. A lot of times our conversations about inclusion are, are kind of big and broad. They're about changing the culture. And, and some of the conversations probably should be there, but Culture is big and it's complex and it's hard to change. Um, we can talk about that and focus on that, but what if we also focused on what can we do to make sure that our meetings are more inclusive? Now that doesn't change the entire work experience. It just impacts meetings, but we spend a lot of time in meetings and there's probably some simple and small and even cheap things that we can do to make our experience in meetings much more inclusive. And I would say a lot of teams can figure those things out without HR in the room without the diversity council in the room or some overpriced consultant. I think sometimes we've got to focus on smaller aspects of the work experience. Um, if we make meetings much more inclusive, not only is that going to impact how I feel and participate in those meetings, but some of those behaviors and some of those norms and some of those expectations are also going to start to ripple outside of those meetings and they are going to start to impact the culture. Uh, so I think sometimes, especially for individual managers, instead of thinking so broadly, they've got to keep it local. How how can I make my team feel more included? What's 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 something we could do in the first five minutes of the day to start off with inclusion and belonging in mind? What's something we could do at the end of the day uh, to make sure that we kind of bring things together and everyone feels included? How can we do meetings differently? How can we make decisions differently? I think I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I, and again, I think. Some of the solutions are fairly simple and small and cost effective. Okay, you mentioned there uh, some some different actions that that leaders can take, and uh, I, I want to I want to sort of carry that thought forward a little bit with you and and ask you where, where the fault lies. Really, um, is the fault with with middle management? Because I've got another quote from you here uh, because I'm a dastardly podcaster. And that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> uh, this this quote uh, was from peoplehum.com. And uh, it's a, for you, you say, I think if we really want to change the way employees feel, if we want them to feel more included, probably the big blow for that behaviors of the people around, especially their manager. So are you saying that middle managers are to blame here, Joe, uh, those directly managing teams, or is the issue of poor adoption of DEI, the result of maybe the C-suite as well? I don't know that I would use the language of saying middle managers are at fault, but I think that middle managers are a big part of the solution moving forward. And, and for some reason, we seem to be reluctant to get to the behavioral component of this work. Um, 
there, you know, in the past year, year and a half, there's been a lot of companies that have made new or renewed commitments to this work. And they almost all do the same thing. They build a diversity council. If they're big enough, they start some employee resource groups. They maybe develop a diversity recruiting strategy. They put out a statement of commitments, a formal business case. They maybe review some policies. And, and, and all of those things can, can have value. But most of those things don't have any direct impact on what it feels like to be an employee. I've seen I've seen organizations do spend two or three years doing those kinds of things. And at the end of those two or three years, they've got a bunch of activities to point to. But the employees inside the organization don't feel any differently. If, if you if you truly want to change the culture, if you truly want to change the way that employees feel, you've got to change the behaviors of the people around them. There's no bigger lever on changing the employee experience than changing the behaviors of the people around them, especially their manager. Um, and for some reason, we've kind of avoided getting to the behavioral component of this work. I, I think the work of inclusion is mostly behavioral and it belongs to managers more so than anybody else. Uh, so that's where my efforts tend to begin uh, by introducing a competency model of what inclusive leadership looks like so that we can start developing those behaviors which also gives us the opportunity at some point down the road to start holding folks accountable. One of the questions uh, that's kind of an ongoing and loud question in this space is how do we hold folks accountable? Well, if you set behavioral expectations for employees and for managers, it's actually pretty easy to hold them accountable. You start writing that language into job descriptions and performance evaluations. You start to consider it in performance evaluations and promotion decisions. It actually becomes pretty easy to hold them accountable, but you've got to You've got to put those clear behavioral expectations out there. You've got to you've got to delineate these are inclusive behaviors for employees and for managers, and they will be expected and rewarded. And these are non-inclusive behaviors, and they will they will not be accepted. A lot of organizations still haven't gotten to that point, and I think this is a pretty big. This is kind of kind of an inflection point. Once you start to change the way that people and groups behave, then you do impact the culture. You do impact the way that it feels to be an employee. Uh, so I think the behavioral piece is a pretty big part of the work uh, still in front of most organizations. Joe, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be devastated. Um, but we are almost out of time already, sir. Uh, just a just a couple more questions for you. Um, I'm pleased to be having fun, Bill. I, I'm I'm enjoying this. This, this, is, this, this, this is good stuff. I'm definitely going to bug you for another interview in the very near future, sir. Fantastic. Um, let's talk a bit. A bit around uh, inherent biases uh, in, in in the work in the workplace. Um, so you, you said, I think real, sincere, sustained behavior. Building his quote, say, I think real, sustained behavior change almost always involves a certain amount of identity change. That's deep and serious and hard work. Um, as we look to wrap up today, Joe, um, I think everybody constantly needs to check their own mindsets even those who think that they are terribly inclusive and and terribly equitable and uh, and, and and are very positive towards everybody they meet I, I reckon there's nobody out there that's perfect so if you could leave a little bit of advice that's sort of maybe recapping some of the things that you've mentioned so far today go about changing our mindsets on an ongoing basis and and getting our heads around how that then can can help other people too yeah, I, I think um, I, I do believe that real, sustained, sincere behavior change involves a certain amount of identity change. And I don't know if identity change is quite the right language, but I know that, um, you know, I had life experience that made me view the world and view myself differently. 
and, and that led me in a different direction and led me to start showing up and behaving in different ways. Business cases are fantastic. And the, and the business case for this work is big and it continues to grow and it's strong. I don't think that business cases really motivate people's behavior. I think people have to find out, they have to figure out why they care about this stuff. And I think there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, it's one thing to look outside and look for all the problems and the gaps and where people are failing, but I think this work always has to, it always has to begin inside. So I would say continue to do your own work, continue to challenge your own thoughts and your beliefs, push yourself outside of your comfort zone. I believe that this work is a journey, <clears throat> regardless of where you're at today, uh, make sure that you're thinking about what those next steps forward are for, for you are. It's an ongoing process of change. It's not a kind of person. It's not a destination. It's an ongoing process of change. So uh, think about what the next steps forward are for you. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes comes from a gentleman by the name of Baird Rustin. He's kind of an unknown, underappreciated American hero. And he said that in every community, we need a band of angelic troublemakers. So I encourage folks to find ways in their community and in their workplace to be to make a little bit more trouble. Angelically, of course, but to make more trouble, to ask more questions uh, and, and to push back on the status quo. That's how we that's how we continue to move this work forward. Super. And Joe, how can our listeners learn more about you? How can they connect with you? Maybe you want to share uh, your website URL, your LinkedIn, uh, your your inside leg measurements, your email address. Who knows what you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, I I appreciate that, and, and they might have already have had heard enough about me, Bill. But if they if they do want to learn more about me, they can go to my website joegerstant.com, and they can find all of my social media connections there. Uh, and uh, back in the day, I used to blog there. It's been a little while since I've done that uh, recently, but uh, they can they can find out more about me there. Wonderful. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Joe, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. And listeners, until next time, go out there and be an angelic troublemaker. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.